0: Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Mr. Brad Snyder to the show.
1: Welcome, Brad. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, We appreciate it. We appreciate it. Brad Snyder is a law professor at the prestigious Georgetown University. Which class do you teach down there, sir?
1: Um, I teach constitutional law. I teach constitutional history, and I also teach a class on sports law.
0: He is also the author of 2006 book, A Well-Paid Slave, Kurt Flood's Fight for Free Agency in Professional Sports. Now, Mr. Snyder, when I made it a point to get a better understanding of sports history, this is one of the first books I picked up. Throughout the years, I've always heard that Kurt Flood was a pivotal uh, part of uh, there being free agency in sports. So that was a story I definitely needed to uh, learn. Uh, let's give the audience a little backstory. story. Flood was an outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals. And in 1969, he was traded and he, he didn't want to report. You know, he, he wanted to challenge, uh, I guess, the rules of baseball. So first, I would ask if you can help us get an understanding of the reserve clause and I guess the baseball landscape before Kurt Flood challenged it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard for people to get their heads around the idea of, um, professional sports without free agency, right. And, And, um, and, and there was a clause in, um, the standard major league baseball players contract that says, we own you for this year and we own you for next year too. And most players in those days did not have agents, right. Um, and so, um, when, when Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax, um, you know, went in, Um, after and and pulled a double holdout and went in there with a Hollywood agent. Um, The the general manager, the Dodgers freaked out Mm -hmm. because players just didn't have agents. So what tended to happen in baseball and all sports for that matter um, was at the end of a season, the player would go in to the general manager's office. Um, The general manager would slide a contract um, across the desk Mm -hmm. and say, here's what I think you're worth. Um, and, and sometimes they would say take it or leave it or, or sometimes a negotiation would take place. Um, but certainly baseball players are not skilled negotiators, right, right? are not skilled right. um, contract negotiators. And, and so that every year the, the player would sign a new deal, mm-hmm. right, that says we own you for this year and we own you for next year, too. Right. Right. What, be- what, what leverage did the players have? The, the only leverage in those days, great question, is was to hold out, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what um, Don Dr- Drysdale and Sandy Koufax did, um, I think, before the '66 season. Mm-hmm. They pulled a double holdout. They were the um, the ace pitchers for the Dodgers. Right. And then that's what Kurt did before the 1969 season. Um, he wanted to be a $100,000-a-year ball player, which in those days, Um, was superstar money, and he was holding out for 100. Um, The Cardinals had just gone to the World Series. Um, Kurt, unfortunately, had dropped um, a fly ball at a crucial moment in Game Um, 7, but he nonetheless thought he was on the cover in 68 as baseball's best center fielder. Um, And um, so um, he was at the top of his game, and he got 90 from that holdout, but what he did with that holdout was he really alienated um the owner of the um St Louis Cardinals um Gussie Bur- Bush, there was a really paternalistic relationship between the owners and these and these players and, and you know and and to hold out like that, I think broke um whatever affection right Gussie Bush had Bad for boy. flood and 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 really um kind of ruined his relationship with the team and and um because he just really wasn't willing to go along um with the program
0: Brad Snyder. So these players would sign a contract to say you're with this team for this year and we own your rights for next year. So there was no free agency. They didn't have much leverage. The only option they had would be to hold out and miss out on money. So this correct. is this was the reserve clause, and this is how players essentially were owned by a team throughout the duration of their career.
1: Correct. A hundred percent correct. And the problem is, is that when the team trades you to a different team as as you pointed out, Flood was traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies after the 69 season um, in October, and he went from the best team um, in the National League to the worst team in the mm-hmm. National League. Then the Phillies owned Flood's rights in perpetuity. And and Philadelphia was known at the time as a terrible place um, for African-American um ballplayers. Yes. Um, Dick Allen had had a horrible time in Philadelphia. Flood wrote in his autobiography the way it is that philadelphia was um the northernmost southern city um and he had, had a good friend on the team um bill white from um, a first baseman mm-hmm. and bill white said don't come here mm-hmm. right this is a punish. you you get traded here this is a punishment wow right and um and bill white's from pennsylvania like he knew what he was talking about i'm from ohio but he um you know lived his life in pennsylvania and and um he, you know so flood knew that that, that Philadelphia was the absolute worst place um, he could go.
0: So, Kurt Flood. And Kurt Flood was, was a good ball player for a long time. He was a three-time All-Star, seven-time Gold Glove winner. He was uh, north of 300 for six seasons. So he played for the Cardinals, won championships there for over 10 years. And because maybe uh, the, the ownership wasn't as fond of him anymore, they traded him. And he had no rights to where he would go. He never saw a free agency in his first decade in the league. So here he is getting traded to Philadelphia, and he doesn't want to report. Right. He's heard that this is one of the worst cities. It's one of the worst teams. It's one of the worst cities for black ball players. He said, I don't want to play in Philly. What was his course of action? What steps did he take to kind of resist this move?
1: Right, two two preliminary things. First of all, he was the longest tenured player on the Cardinals. Mm. He'd been with the Cardinals for ten seasons. Mm. Um, you know, the the guy I really analogize him to, particularly the Yankee fans, yes, is Bernie Williams. Okay. Right, he was like that. That he was not a super duper star, right. but he was that mainstay on the club. Right, so Flood's course of action is really either negotiate with Philadelphia mm-hmm. and Philadelphia, including um, some bonus money was offering him a contract north of a hundred thousand um, dollars or just sit out or just quit. Mm-hmm. Right. Or just like, you know, or just not play. Right. Those were his two options, you know, go to Philadelphia, take their money or don't play at all. Right. And, and Kurt, instead of just choosing option A or option B chose option C um, he met um, he decided to sue Major League Baseball um, and sue um, and challenge the reserve clause um, as a violation of the antitrust laws um, and as as baseball was basically running an uh, illegal monopoly. Wow. Right. And, and, and so he went to two lawyers. First, he went to a St. Louis lawyer um, who was his personal lawyer. And that personal lawyer said, um, we need to go see Marvin Miller. Marvin wasn't a lawyer. He was an economist, um, but he was the head of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Right. And um, Miller said to Flood when they met, he said, this is a million to one shot, this this lawsuit. And I'll explain why it was a million to one shot in a minute. He said, and even if this million to one shot comes home, you'll never see a dime. Wow. And Flood at, said, um, Well, will this lawsuit benefit future players? And Miller said it would. And Flood said, that's good enough for me. Wow, Brad,
0: let me stop you right there. Kurt Flood was one of the higher paid players in the league. And he was willing to take this sacrifice for the betterment of not only his peers, but future players.
1: Correct. And the reason why I wrote this book, A Well-Paid Slave, is to figure out why. (laughs) <laughs> why would someone throw the career away? Yeah. Right. Why would someone, you know, flood could have played out the string, even if he only had three or four years left, he left at least $250,000 in the table. Um, why would somebody in a kind of altruistic fashion yeah. do something only to benefit others? And, and that's what I really kind of set out to kind of figure out.
0: What did his peers think of him going up against the reserve clause, the system that had been in place for baseball for over 50 years. What did they
1: think? This was a really shocking thing to me. There was not universal support among his fellow players. Mm -hmm. Um, There was such a culture of fear Mm -hmm. and there was such a power imbalance between the owners and the players. Um, Kurt Flood's best friend um, on the St. Louis Cardinals was their ace pitcher, Bob Gibson, Mm -hmm. right? They were, you know, they, they were best friends. And, and Gibson would not speak out in favor of Flood. He said, "Buddy, I'm behind you, but I'm a hundred yards behind you." <laughs> because here's what here's what Bob Gibson knew: Willie Mays got traded, Hank Aaron got traded, Frank Robinson got traded. Right? These are all the black superstars. I'm in the game at the time. No one was untradeable in those days, particularly right. a star player late in his career. There were other players. This was really shocking to me. Harmon Killebrew of the Twins Mm -hmm. and and Carl Yastrzemski of the Red Sox, um, they spoke out against Flood's lawsuit um, because they were so under the thumb and beholden to their respective owners, and they couldn't envision a life with free agency and and what that would do for them. And they just thought, and Carl Yastrzemski said to me, I talked to him for the book, he said, Mr. Yawkey was good to me.
0: The owner right. of the Red Sox, yeah.
1: The owner of the Red Sox. Mr. Yawkey was good to me. Well, w- 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 I didn't have a problem with the current system um, because um, I knew that Mr. Yawkey would take care of me. Wow. Right?
0: So people were comfortable in uh, the current arrangement, which makes. Right, in it. Which and makes and other Kurt Flood afraid. Other people right? were afraid, which makes Kurt Flood's story even that more amazing. The, the sacrifice. And this is what I want to bring home to the audience. Like, Kurt Flood was. Making some money. He was one of the higher-paid players. So this truly, I guess, selfless and altruistic act is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Um, his players, his peers, they were arguing against free agency. In 2022, that, that sounds crazy. That, that baseball players, athletes were arguing against free agency.
1: And, and, you know, they just couldn't, it's hard to see the future, right? It, yes. it, it, it's hard to see like an alternate universe. And I'll, I'll tell you um, when the players started to see um what Kurt's, you know, visionary genius was all about when um Charlie Finley reached Catfish Hunters contract. Um, In 1974, an independent arbitrator ruled um, that Catfish Hunter was a free agent. Mm-hmm. And then Catfish Hunter signed with the Yankees for $1.9 million. And that's when everybody realized, oh, that's right, what the- that's what we can get in free agency if we can negotiate um, with the team of, of our choice, mm-hmm. right, and, and, and go to the highest bidder and not just with the team that owns us for life.
0: Kurt Flood... And Marvin Miller, who was heading the uh, Players Association at that time, their case eventually got to the Supreme Court. What can you tell about the proceedings uh, that happened at, at, at that
1: level? It was, it was kind of a crazy Supreme Court argument. And the reason why it was a million to one shot was because there were two Supreme Court cases um, that had already been decided, one in 1922 and one in 1953, um, that said baseball was exempt from the antitrust laws. Mm-hmm. And it's a complicated legal story, um, but basically Oliver Wendell Holmes in ni- 1922 said baseball wasn't interstate commerce, that it was just a local operation, right? Each game was just a local operation. And and he therefore um, said it didn't qualify under the antitrust laws. And the Supreme Court upheld that again, um, in 1953, instead of Congress wants to change it, it's up to Congress. Um, but baseball was the only professional sport and really the only business um, that was exempt um, from um, the antitrust laws, which was why it was going to be so hard to win.
0: Oh, so hard to win. Brad, what was uh, baseball's argument to keep the reserve clause? Because we talked about some people being fearful but there were some people that really believed the reserve clause was necessary. And if free agency was to happen, that would be the end of baseball. What was the argument for the reserve clause?
1: Right. The, the, the public line, right, to the American people was, Kurt Flood's trying to destroy the game of baseball, right? That, that this will be the end of baseball as we know it, without the reserve clause. Um, The owners were even saying that they would have to go back to barnstorming, that they would be unable to have, you know, a 154 or 162 game schedule um, with, with a with um free agency um, and but their legal argument was somewhat different. Their legal argument was this was a labor issue, like a collective bargaining issue mm-hmm. between the union and management. This was not an antitrust issue, and we can be reasonable at the negotiating table. And they had to eventually put. Um, their money where their mouth was in that regard, because during Kurt's trial in 1970, uh, Marvin Miller was negotiating um, the 1970 basic agreement. And they got two really important concessions um, out of that collective bargaining agreement. One was they got an independent arbitrator to decide all grievances, mm-hmm. which was huge right. Um, in the past. um, The, the commissioner decided all um, the grievances and he just works for the owners. We see that in the NFL. Where Roger Goodell has the last word on on grievances, um, in the NFL to yeah. this day, yes, right. And it was that independent grievance procedure that allowed Catfish Hunter to become a free agent in '74, and that allowed Dave um, McNally and Andy Messersmith to come to play out that option year, mm-hmm. play without a contract for a year, and test the reserve clause as simply a one-year option and not a lifetime option, yeah, and allowed free agency to to come into being. The second concession was equally important and still exists today. Um, It's called the 10 and 5 rule, Mm -hmm. but at the time it was called the Kurt Flood rule. It said if you have 10 years of major league service time and five with the same team, you can veto a trade. And there's still uh, major league players to this day, veterans at the trade deadline, number that veto trades. And that's because of Kurt Flood's lawsuit.
0: Amazing. Amazing. With the Supreme Court case, no active players would come out and speak on behalf of Kurt Flood. But he was able to get a retired player to come and speak on his behalf, the great Jackie Robinson.
1: Yeah. Uh, to, to me, that, that was the highlight of my whole book, right? <laughs> so there was a trial um, in federal district court in lower Manhattan, and all these former players and owners spoke out in favor of the reserve clause. And only um three people, testified on Kurt Flood's behalf besides Marvin Miller. Um, One um, was um, a former um, player and general manager and owner, Hank Greenberg. Mm -hmm. Um, Two was another former owner, um, Bill Veck, um, who was great on both um, race um, and and labor. Mm -hmm. And and third was Jackie Robinson. And and Jackie Robinson was Kurt's hero. Um, In um, 1962, um, Robinson um, had since retired from the game. He invited Kurt to speak at an NAACP rally Mm -hmm. um, in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, They were surveilled um, by the state secret police. Um, Their host um, was Medgar Evers, um, who seven months later um, was shot and killed. Robinson was Kurt's idol, and Kurt really, during the trial in 1970, was distraught. He was sitting out um, the Major League Baseball season. He had personal problems. He had financial problems he had no money coming in it took a toll on him. challenging the system took a toll on him personally financially no doubt no doubt and and robinson by this point had diabetes he had a cane he was partially blind he walked down that center aisle he stopped and he whispered in kurt's ears keep your head up mm-hmm. you're doing the right thing and that gave kurt the boost he needed to see this through to the end, that his hero, Jackie Robinson, not only would tell him to keep his spirits up, but then would take the witness stand and say, there is no need for the reserve clause. I just want to make one other point about Jackie Robinson, because yeah. I think he's the most fascinating person in sports history. The Dodgers thanked Jackie Robinson for his service at the end of his career, by trading him to their arch rivals, the New York Giants. Yeah, right. Did. So even the great Jackie Robinson um, was sold like a piece of property mm-hmm. um, at the end of his career, and that really hurt Robinson. And rather than report to the Giants, um, he 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 retired.
0: He retired. Jackie Robinson played out his career under the reserve clause. Correct.
1: No doubt. Yes.
0: Uh, and when they went to kind of prep Jackie Robinson to take the stand Marvin Miller and the team there was one hurdle because in 1958 wasn't Jackie Robinson on record
1: as supporting the reserve clause uh you've done your homework yes he was right um J- Jackie Robinson had testified um before Congress um that they should have a reserve clause um but I, I think between 1958 and 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 1970. Um, Jackie Robinson realized that, um, branch Rickey had really, um, I think deceived him about the need for a reserve clause and his eyes opened up. And I think Robinson was also hurt. Um, major league baseball never hired Jackie Robinson after his playing career. He was always on the outside looking in. And, and I thought, think that as time went on, Um, Robinson began to see um, the inequities um, between the players and the owners and to feel those really deeply on somebody who was really kept at bay from the game. It's hard for people to understand today where we have Jackie Robinson Day and everybody celebrates him like, um, they celebrate Dr. King in a few days. Um, but in those days, Major League Baseball um, wanted nothing to do with Jackie Robinson um, after his playing career. After
0: his playing career was up, he couldn't get a managerial position. He couldn't get a, a general manager position.
1: No, he went and worked for Mr. Coffee, right? Like yeah. He went and worked um, as a businessman in private business um, because um, he was deemed as too much of an independent thinker mm-hmm. um, to to. to to be in the game of baseball right he refused to be a yes man right. right for the owners he was such an iconoclast robinson was and and really outspoken and really fearless and and that's really um i think his testimony at kurt flood's um lawsuit reiterates that you know Indeed. just that fearlessness and and willingness to go against the grain and um, that epitomized robinson's whole career and floods too for that matter i mean i wrote that he's the next generation's Jackie Robinson,
0: for sure. And
1: but that's that like that, like Robinson brought us racial equality, and 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 Flood brought economic freedom to the players. Wow,
0: and that's why I love reading my history. You said I did my homework. I I really read this book. You know, um, I can tell. Like you said, it's amazing that the the league celebrates Jackie Robinson Day. The forty two is re- retired throughout the sport, but in his post playing days. He couldn't get an opportunity in baseball, you know, and I, I think that's important to know. Kurt Flood, Marvin Miller, head of the Baseball Union, they went, they had their case heard at the Supreme Court,
1: but they lost. They lost. So they how- lost. It was unbelievably, um, it was unbelievably bad, right? It was an unbelievably bad um situation. They had hired a Miller when he was working for the Steelworkers Union, um, worked. Um, with the general counsel there, a man named Arthur Goldberg, um, who became um, John F. Kennedy's Secretary of Labor, and then who um, um, Kennedy named to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1962. And and Goldberg retired from the Supreme Court in 65, or he left um, to go be the head of the United Nations to try to end the Vietnam War for Lyndon Johnson. Um, and Goldberg, um, I mean, Marvin Miller thought, oh, I've got a former Supreme Court justice arguing on my behalf. Um, this is going to be a definite winner. And um, instead, the opposite happened. Like Goldberg was past his prime as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, I analogize him to like Willie Mays stumbling in the outfield for oh. the New York Mets Um, late in his career. He got up in front of his former colleagues of the court and he had stage fright. Wow. And he he couldn't get into Flood's legal argument, which was actually quite sophisticated. And he never really got Flood's best arguments out on the table before um his former colleagues. And then there was a the court was really closely divided. A lot of times, oral argument doesn't matter. The judges have made up their minds based on the briefs, mm-hmm. right, which is, you know, logical, right? But this was a really close case. Um, the justices um, were very evenly divided. And in fact, several justices switched votes um, after oral arguments switched sides. Mm-hmm. Um, Thurgood Marshall was on the side of Major League Baseball at first, and then he switched um and then he switched to Flood, and then other people um, switched from Flood um, to Major League Baseball, and eventually Flood lost 5-3. But it was deadlocked 4-4 um, for several months at the court um, after his oral argument.
0: Kurt Flood had a former Supreme Court justice on his team, and he went up there and he had stage fright. He dropped the he ball. And did. And okay. um, ult- go ahead.
1: Yeah, ultimately it's like, They got the biggest name they could find to argue for Flood. And sometimes you don't need the biggest name. You need the best lawyer. And and, um, the lawyer for MLB did a really good job. um, But um, Flood's lawyer choked that day. Mm
0: -hmm. Thurgood Marshall was on that Supreme Court also. Yes. I don't remember that. So he loses the case. What is the reaction around baseball? What is the reaction around his... His fellow players and many people may not know. After challenging baseball, Kurt Flood actually returned to the sport, playing for the was the Washington Senators.
1: Well, yeah. The problem, one of the problems with his litigation was um, his lawyers had allowed him in 1971 after he sat out the 1970 season. Right, he refused to go to Philadelphia to play for the Senators. He lasted only a couple of weeks. Right, because the time off and his personal problems just had taken a toll on him physically. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I think that ruined his lawsuit more than anything else. Going back to the senators really hurt his call, cause. I'll tell you why. I mean, I'll, I'll analogize him to somebody who's an obvious analogy. There is so much sympathy for Colin Kaepernick, right, who sacrificed his entire career for kneeling and standing up for Black Lives Matter and against um, police brutality and was blackballed by the NFL, I think if Kurt had sat out all of the 1970 season and all the 1971 season and all the half of the 1972 season um, until the Supreme Court decided his case, he would have won. But there was a sense among the justices, what are we doing here? Kurt got to play for the team of his choice. He did... Um, come back with the senators and, and, you know, he left the game. Right. There's no real um, controversy here. And I think Kurt became kind of less sympathetic
0: because he returned like, to the sport
1: because he returned to the senators. He, he, there was He returned in to in the sport words, no case or controversy. Like, what's the harm here? Right. right. He's not blackballed like Colin Kaepernick. Right. Um, you know, he, he got a different opportunity and it didn't work out for him. And that has nothing to do with the reserve clause.
0: So hold on, Brad. He he returned to the sport of baseball before the ruling came down.
1: With Correct. The Court. Wow. That, Correct. that would hurt his case. Yeah, that hurt his case. And his lawyers um, had MLB um, sign an agreement saying this doesn't um, moot his case. <laughs> and this doesn't make his case irrelevant. But that was really another error by Arthur Goldberg as biggest, um, the one at oral argument. You know, you should he should have advised Kurt, hey, if you want to be um, the most sympathetic plaintiff um, in front of the justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, um, you need to keep sitting out mm-hmm. Um, because this is I mean, he's signed for the Washington centers for one hundred and ten thousand dollars. Wow. Right. That doesn't make him look sympathetic. And there's hard to see how he was harmed by the reserve clause at that wow. point.
0: Real quick. How did he get from uh, the Phillies to the senators?
1: Well, I think the Phillies. Um, It's a great question. The Phillies relinquished his rights and sold his rights to the Senators um, once they knew that 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 flood wasn't going to report. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think Major League Baseball really urged the Phillies to give his rights to the Senators because they wanted um, Kurt back in the game to try to make his lawsuit irrelevant.
0: So when he went to the Senators, he was out of shape. Uh, he, He just wasn't the player he was anymore, mentally, physically. So eventually his career came to an end after a few weeks with the Senators. What were those years like after baseball? Because he lost the Supreme Court, but eventually free agency would take place after Curt Flood was already retired. Right. What was that like for him when free agency did come to to pass? So
1: so those are two different questions. And let me take the first one about – um, what happened to him afterwards um flood left the Senators in 71 um, and exiled himself um first to Denmark um but but um in in 70 and then he came back to the Senators from Denmark but then from the Senators he left for Majorca Spain which is an island um off the coast of Spain right. and um he really um he was a functioning alcoholic for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. And I think like a lot of baseball players were, right? If you look at Mickey Mantle and others, right? They were functioning alcoholics. Mm -hmm. Um, And you take away baseball from Kurt and he becomes a non-functioning alcoholic, right? And and I think alcoholism took its toll. Um, He didn't have any money. I mean, he became pretty destitute um and he came back to Oakland, his hometown, um in in seventy-six in really bad shape. Mm-hmm. Um, in really bad shape. The American consulate um in Spain um eventually had to get him um out of Europe um and back home because he had no money. And so um this was a really dark time for him. And he um fought a battle against alcoholism, which we all know is disease, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and a tough disease. And it took him about 10 years to conquer. Um, alcoholism. Um, but I would say this about, you know, Catfish Hunter becomes a free agent two years after Kurt's lawsuit because of the things Kurt fought for. Messages with McNally three years after Kurt's lawsuit. And then the floodgates opened, no pun intended. And lots of guys um, became free agents because of the 1976 um, collecting, collective bargaining agreement. But Flood was not bitter about those guys. Um, he was not bitter at all. In fact, um he he was very supportive about the million dollar contracts, um, the multi-million dollar contracts these players were getting. Wow. Um, you know, he he like when Roger Clemens um signed a deal, Flood um was happy for Roger Clemens, mm-hmm. right? He said um he said actors um make a mil- a million dollars a picture or five million dollars a picture. Why can't ball players? make a million dollars a year or $5 million a year. He never was resentful Mm -hmm. that he never got a dime from his lawsuit and that other players made millions from free agency. Um, He thought um, that the more freedom, the more power and the more money Mm -hmm. players had, the better. And I've said this in a lot of different places, but I I think like what would have made flood thrilled was to see LeBron James on national television say, you know with the decision show on ESPN <laughs> right i'm taking my talents to south beach right that's the culmination of everything flood was fighting for mm-hmm. right that to to um take away to balance out the power between the owners and the players um, and and to really um the players are the ones that the fans are coming right. to see for sure. and, and and um, you know, I think LeBron James's decision show was really the culmination of everything um, that Kurt fought for.
0: Yeah, for sure. Kurt Flood died in what ninety seven.
1: Yeah, he died of throat cancer um in in January of ninety seven, and and he really got a lot of accolades. I'd say it's not. Yeah, I was going to ask:
0: of, Did baseball ever embrace him? Did he ever get to see and, and feel that love from the sport after free agency became rampant?
1: Well, I, I the short answer is yes. And the question, when you say baseball, um, I'll tell you who embraced him, right? During the 1994 baseball strike, um, the players um, invited them to speak at one of their meetings in Atlanta, um, and he was given a huge standing ovation by the players at that meeting um, in Atlanta in 94. He was also featured um, in um, Ken Burns' baseball documentary, and you can go back and watch it. Um, Kurt's an incredibly eloquent and smart guy. And, and you should listen to him talk about his lawsuit. And that really revived a lot of interest in Kurt Flood, that baseball documentary. And then um, President and Mrs. Clinton um, invited all of the um, talking heads and the people in the documentary to the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got to meet President and Mrs. Clinton. So uh, this short intro is, yes, he got his due from some segments um, of the baseball world. Right. Um, but I um, mean, in other ways, he didn't. I mean, in other ways, I mean, the union um never got flood a job, wow. um you know, and, and you know he never got a job in major league baseball after a brief um stint announcing with the A's um in '76. Um, he um, there was a senior baseball league that was started, and he was the commissioner of it. But um, I, I think Kurt saw himself uh, much like his idol Jackie Robinson. I'm um, on the outside of the game. I'm um, looking in, but Marvin Miller had warned him that was going to happen. Yes. He said, not only is this a million to one shot and you'll never see a dime, but you'll never get a job in the game again. Right. <laughs> you know, these sports leagues don't like um, freedom fighters. They don't like um, individuals um, who want to take on the establishment. Those people tend to pay a price, Um, as we saw with Colin pa- Kaepernick, as we saw with Muhammad Ali, um, as we saw um with Tommy Smith. Um, you know, and John Carlos. Yes, a big right? price. Yeah, th- those people um, pay a price for their activism.
0: Brad, you mentioned that uh, this was truly a selfless act on the part of Kurt Flood, And you set out to figure out why, with someone who was one of the higher paid players in the game, why would you jeopardize your career? Why would you challenge the reserve clause when everybody was just content and staying packed? Why did he make that decision?
1: Yeah, I mean, the short answer is the civil rights movement. I think there's a sense um, of people um, in the history, you know, who um, think about the history of baseball, that after um, Jackie Robinson um, integrated um, the National League and after Larry Doby integrated the American League, that everything was easy for African-American players, Um, you know, in that the succeeding generation, that next generation, that. Joshua generation, if you will. And, and those players had it really hard. And, and um, I, I think Kurt experienced, um, some of the worst aspects of the civil rights movement. He, he's an 18 year old kid in from Oakland, California, who was on an American Legion team with black people and white people and Asian people. Um, and, um, you know, he goes to spring training in Florida with the Cincinnati Reds um, in Tampa, Florida. He shows up at the hotel. Um, It's an all-white hotel, and he's immediately shuffled off into a cab for black people Um, and into a the black section of town um, at a boarding house where he finds all of the team's black players, because that's where he has to stay in those days. Wow. It just gets worse from there. Um, He's sent to the Carolina League in 1956 in High Point in Thomasville, and he experiences the worst- um, Southern style segregation possible. He's not allowed to eat with his teammates. He's not allowed um, to even shower or put his own laundry in with his teammates' mm-hmm. um, laundry. The and he's the Carolina League Player of the Year. He wants to go home yeah. after a couple of weeks in the Carolina League, and, and you know not being able to go to the bathroom um, at a rest stop, um, you know, with his teammates, or not being able to eat in the restaurant with his teammates. Next year's even worse mm-hmm. in the South Atlantic League, um, known as the Sally League in Savannah. Right. He has a horrible year there. It's even the deeper South um, than North Carolina is. Um gets traded by the Reds to the Cardinals after that season. Um, struggles yes. with the Cardinals to find his footing as a really racist manager, Salahemis. Mm-hmm. And even though he's not a full-time player um, in the early 60s, Um, he and a few other black players say it's ridiculous that we still have to go to spring training in St. Petersburg, Florida, and stay in a in a black boarding house. Right. And we can't stay in the hotel um, with the other players. Um, the, the Cardinals ownership to their credit buys the hotel and integrates it mm-hmm. um, by buying it. Um and so um that's 61, 62, as I mentioned before, he goes to Mississippi with Jackie Robinson, which is a huge eye-opener yes. and showed Flood that he could be um, not just a ball player. I'm um, fighting about, um, you know, segregated spring training facilities, but also the larger freedom struggle. Yes. Right. Um, and then um, in 1964, after the Cardinals have won the World Series against the Yankees, um, Flood um, and his wife um, try to rent a home in a neighborhood in Walnut Creek, California. Right. Yes. This is in liberal San Francisco, <laughs> right? I'm um, in Walnut Creek, and someone threatens him. i um, with a shotgun. Wow. If he moves into that house, um, he gets armed police protection and a court order, and they move into that house on live television. Yes, and court Kurt. Um, he's got a pregnant wife at the time. Um, they move. They're move in, and, and Kurt, the cameras rolling, is talking to the um, the the, the local news. Um, about why he felt. That he just had to stand up for his rights yes. and that the law was on his side. So to me, right, if you look at everything he experienced from High Point to Savannah to Mississippi to Walnut Creek, it's obvious why he challenges the reserve clause um, You know, after he gets traded in, in 1969. Wow. This is someone who spent his life standing up to it. To injustice throughout his career, right? He was not just willing to go along and get along, and um. So, um, I just think the civil rights movement and and really the racism and discrimination he experienced in that next generation after Jackie Robinson made him super sensitive to injustice, and he saw the reserve clause as an injustice, right? Nice. He told Howard Cosell, "A well paid slave is nonetheless a slave, right?" Wow. And and uh, uh, you know, you know that that really lit this lawsuit on fire in a lot of ways and turned a lot of people against him i'm saying how can a black ball player making close to a hundred thousand dollars a year call himself a slave right there was a lot of racism even during his lawsuit directed kurt's way wow
0: wow brad i've heard authors describe these books as like labor you know um giving birth you know uh you got to do a lot of research, like nine months. The the child is being baked in the oven. Like it, it, it's it's hard work. And what's evident from you is your passion. You know, even as you speak about this. So I want to ask you, like, why did you decide to take on this project? Some would say this is Black history. This is like, why did you choose to tell this story?
1: Well, uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I quit my job at a law firm. Um, to 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 write this book, they, and the lawyers I was working for said, "You're crazy. Like, why are you quitting your job to do this?" I said, "I have to tell the story, right? I needed to tell the story." Mm-hmm. Um, Kurt is a is a tremendous story of one man taking on, on the establishment, wow. right? And I just, you know, and, and one man taking on the establishment, not for his own good, but for other people's um best interests and and uh, that kind of story just it lit a fire under me and and you know i i don't look at it as black history i, I look at it as american history mm-hmm. and, and um you know i'm was embarrassed when i was a sports writer at at, at the baltimore sun i um, in 1994 and the baseball strike hit that i knew almost nothing about kurt flood i was covering the game of baseball wow. and i didn't know the story and if i didn't know the story and i was supposed to be writing about it for a living in 94 that i would guess a lot of other people didn't know the story either and i, I just thought the world needed to know what curt um flood had done he uh, made baseball a better game um he made all of her professional sports better and you know he made america better and, and um and he paid a huge price for that but you know he thought that price was worth it
0: wow that's amazing well you did a great job man i'm so thankful for authors like you who who Take on the project of telling these great stories, so you know they they will forever live on and not be forgotten.
1: You know. Well, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I the um you know William, I appreciate your passion for um for learning the history of the game and learning the history of the country and and the depth of your knowledge about um, Jackie Robinson and Kurt flood. And, and, you know, we need to keep educating people, um, about, um, Kurt flood. I, I was amazed when the Yankees ace pitcher signs his $300 million contract. And, and who's the first person he thanks after signing a, you know, what? $324 million contract. He thanks Kurt flood. He thanked
0: right. Kurt flood, Brad Snyder. I was floored last yeah. year. Garrett Cole pitching for the Yankees. When he's up there with his family, he's getting generational wealth. He thanks Kurt Flood. What was that like for you, the author of A Well-Paid Slave, Kurt Flood's fight for free agency and professional sports?
1: I got chills, right? I got chills. Like you know, you watch that on ESPN, and and I just got chills. i um, seeing that. Like here's a, a, a you know a pitcher, a, a, a white guy who you know did, yeah. you know you wouldn't think would know the game, and 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 bless the catcher on the pirates who um you know the backstory of that is um when Garrett Cole was coming up with the Pirates um a catcher on the team uh, made him write a book report wow. about Kurt flood and so that's how and this is what the players have to do right the older players have to educate the younger players about how they got to where they are um how they were able to achieve um generational wealth and the reason why are people like Jackie Robinson people like Kurt flood um people like Catfish Hunter right who, who fought for their rights and stood up for them and, and and i can't remember the name of the catcher um on the on the um Pirates League, that his first name is john um the last name eludes me um but it's amazing yeah that you know not not to hate you know i know there's a the amount of hazing that goes on among veteran players in locker rooms but rather than haze a guy to have him write a book report about a about kurt flood and, and about the history of the game i just thought that was um, amazing
0: yeah big time big time when I was trying to find a contact for you, I saw your scholarship, and this is not the only book that you have written. Please tell us about uh, the book on the Homestead Grays, please. What's the title? That's that's next on my list, by the way, Braznor. Well,
1: I appreciate that. That's the first book I wrote. That was my um, honors thesis in college. I wrote a book about the Homestead Grays um called beyond the shadow of the senators and and the homestead grays um were one of the two greatest teams in the history of the negro leagues and, and um uh, during um the war really starting in 1940 um they're based out of Pittsburgh right, right? the team started as a steel mill team um, but um Pittsburgh was not on the rail line um and there was gas rationing during the war and so the grays started playing their home games in Washington DC and, and the book's really a story is about how this great black middle class of Washington, D.C., mm. and, and, and really working class black people in Washington, D.C., um, embraced this ball club. And they and they ha- had the best team in the Negro National League. And, and the irony is the um, Washington Senators um, were the worst team, right? First in war, first in peace, and last in the American <laughs> League is what people um, called the Washington Senators. So you had in the same stadium, in Griffith Stadium, you had the best all black team and the worst white team i'm in the same stadium and you know josh gibson was the home run hitting catcher and buck leonard um, was um the future hall of fame first baseman and ray brown was a hall of fame pitcher and satchel page would come to town um with the kansas city monarchs And, and um they would they would fill griffith stadium which in those days um only held up to 27,000 people. One day they had 32,000 people in Griffith Stadium. Wow. Just five more than capacity. Right. When Satchel Paige came, they roped off areas. Right. It was a huge deal. And, um, you know, these guys should have been in the major leagues. And, and you know, I say this all the time. All the stats before 47 are illegitimate, right? Because half the talent wasn't allowed to play. Right. And right? with the
0: Homestead Grids, the, it, it, there was a, a a movement to try to get the whole team integrated into MLB
1: yes um you know Bill Vec again who testified at Kurt's trial um in 1943 um he um wanted to buy the Philadelphia Phillies and then um take a whole team of black players um into MLB um <laughs> with, with the Phillies and and MLB caught wind of it and they wouldn't let Vec buy the Phillies um in order to do that but satchel page said yeah let's have a team of black players in there they would have crushed any team in the major leagues um with Paige pitching um and Gibson catching and Buck Leonard playing um first base and Cool Papa Bell in the outfield and and you know th- those guys Cool Papa Bell was on the Grays as well. I mean it's just a uh, again like flood a story that most baseball fans just don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Brad Snyder, um I really enjoyed your book. I really appreciate you joining us here on the podcast and I appreciate your your passion for the, for the history.
1: Well, William, I really appreciate being there. I'd love to come back, so definitely have me back. All right,
0: we'll do it. All right, take care, man. Ladies and gentlemen, WBH Radio, we're out of here.